how can we create safe neighborhoods for us to come home? How can we make it safe enough for even us who are in our communities to be the teachers, the artists, the lovers, the cookers, the comedians, the performers, you know, that I see that we are. We really criminalize being black and we really criminalize joy. We really criminalize asking questions. We criminalize, you know, being creative. We criminalize for stepping outside of anything. And so I'm really looking forward to what it looks like when we feel safe to be a part of our own lives. Welcome. You're listening to the inaugural series of the Women Beyond Walls podcast. I'm your host, lawyer and activist, Sabrina Matani. And on this podcast, I have the privilege of being joined by some incredible individuals, women with lived experience of the justice system, feminist lawyers, activists, and experts, all committed to seeing an end to the over-incarceration and over-criminalization of women worldwide. Jodie, welcome to the Women Beyond Walls podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. I've been inspired by you for so long, so I'm really thrilled I get the chance to speak to you today. Thank you so much for joining us from Florida. Thank you so much for having me. Perhaps I'll start, Jodie, by reading just a little bit of your very, very impressive bio. Jodie Polk is the founder and director of the Legal Empowerment and Advocacy Hub, Leah. Leah is the first participatory defense hub in Florida in the US and the home of the National Jailhouse Lawyers Initiative. Jodie is also the founder of the Florida Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls. Jodie is a leading activist who worked to restore voting rights for 1.5 million people with felony convictions and now works to use legal empowerment as a tool for prison abolition. Some incredible work there, Jodie. Yes. Can you please start by telling me about the journey that led you into legal empowerment work? Absolutely. You know, for me, when I was 23 years old, I was incarcerated and sent to the Florida Department of Corrections. And so while inside, I was actually assigned as my role of employment to be a law clerk. And I was trained and became a certified law clerk. I identify still as a jailhouse lawyer. And sometimes when I think about it now, even before my incarceration, I just always kind of had an affinity for the law. There was this time I thought I'd be a police officer, a corrections officer, and I was a bells bondsman um, before I was arrested. So I really believe I always kind of had a little legal empowerment inside of there. But um, for me, when I came home, I wanted to be a lawyer. I knew I wanted to be a lawyer while I was incarcerated and was very proud, re found my identity in being a jailhouse lawyer and, you know, helping women, you know, learn the law, know the law. For some reason, I was just so excited by the law and I started dreaming, you know, of just how I could impact and be a part of it. So when I got out of prison, you know, I've naturally used 
you know, my knowledge and love for the law in my own personal life. But in 2018, I had the ability to win the Soros Fellowship and form the Jailhouse Lawyers Initiative. And so I had the opportunity to go to Budapest and learned about legal empowerment. And then I saw internationally how lawyers were working together in this participatory way with community members and seeing community paralegals, people who lived in the neighborhoods, who are part of these communities, learning the law with the people who, you know, were over the law with lawyers and, you know, being that connection between the people in their community. And it really reminded me of what we were doing as law clerks, as jailhouse lawyers on the inside, you know, and so it's been amazing to bring legal empowerment, you know, what I saw internationally and think about how we could apply um, legal empowerment. And then also I feel like I have this amazing privilege from being on the inside of like really thinking about how just we could be more a part of it. So honestly, legal empowerment has been like a question, you know, for me for a long time now, just how I could be a part of it. But that's kind of like the journey that it's been to get into this space. That's a really inspiring journey. And I love how you used what you learned inside, you know, to keep helping people when you came out. And it's something that I think is an encouragement to all of us to sort of use some of the most challenging experiences in our lives, but to kind of use them for better. And I'd love to unpack a bit more about what is a jailhouse lawyer? How do you get trained to be a jailhouse lawyer? You know, what sort of role do they play in the prison? And also, are there many women jailhouse lawyers or are they mostly men? So it's hard to believe, but incarcerated people do have, you know, some access to, you know, rights or protections that are supposed to be in place. And so it is a constitutional right to have access to the courts. And so jailhouse lawyers or law clerks is a program that institutions use to be able to fulfill that constitutional right of access to the courts. And so jailhouse lawyers and law clerks are all over. There are a few prisons inside of the United States where um, they use a different system, but the institution is responsible for providing the resources inside of the law library, as well as training law clerks. Some law clerks do not have a formal training program. That's one of the things that we're trying to, you know, do throughout the jailhouse lawyers initiative. And so a lot of these individuals, community members on the inside are self-taught. Majority of our jailhouse lawyers are serving life sentences. So this is people with extended sentences that are living whole lives, you know, behind the prison system. And so there's a variety. And so, you know, a jailhouse lawyer could be someone with the knowledge who's helping you on the yard. And they're also, you know, um, people who are assigned to that work. And so, you know, for myself, when I went into the system, I was amazed when I saw a law library or when women were telling me there's a law library, there's law clerks. Like to me, especially like knowing these were going to be other women, I never forget. Like it was like going to a real law office that one I was excited to go to, like in a real justice world, if you went into a law office. And, you know, getting in there and, you know, um, just being able to ask questions that I never was able to ask. We're silent the entire time throughout the criminal justice system. And so through my own journey of becoming a female law clerk, and there were, you know, I got, I moved to a couple prisons, 
you know, throughout my system. But I can say there are jailhouse lawyers and there are women jailhouse lawyers in every prison inside of the United States. And so I definitely saw the impact, you know, of women. A lot of times the institutions do not provide us with the resources. I mean, injustice, when it's allowed in one place, is going to always, right, it's going to infect everything. And so when you think of conditions to confinement, when you think of experiences in prison, the law library is not exempt. And so, you know, a lot of the women did lack some of, and I mean, these are the most brilliant minds. I mean, even myself, I learned how to take what they gave us, this incomplete raggedy set of West Digest. I mean, you really seen women who would read just whatever we have. I mean, and reading the law, reading, you know, every detail, inhaling, learning the law and, you know, trying to use it as a solution. And I tell a lot of people, you'd imagine that we're working on criminal justice issues, but it was the first time that even myself and many women in prison for the first time see exactly how much the law interacts with our day-to-day lives. I had never thought about family law. I had never thought about, you know, um, there'd be women coming in, I mean, immigration. And I was incarcerated in 2007 and women were getting mass deported in 2008, 2009. I mean, it was just crazy. We'd never seen it. And so to even see how jailhouse lawyers, how, you know, there's this big narrative that jailhouse lawyers abuse the court system with frivolous filing. But when we didn't even have resources on the inside, that communication with the court was one of our only ways of understanding and learning the law and seeing creative solutions of these women being able through litigation, you know, to be able to get these courts to at least respond with enough information that we could, you know, be a part of the system. So family law, civil law, people still lost their license. You know, people who are incarcerated don't just look like I think what people imagine. So these were mothers, you know, these were professionals, business owners, doctors, veterans. And so we responded as best, you know, as we could, but there was a lot missing. And so that's why I'm excited to be on this side. And to be able to have gone through that experience and to really be able to help support our sisters that are holding up a big part of the criminal justice system and the community while being invisible on the inside. It's such a great model, uh, Jailhouse Lawyer, and I wish there were more Jailhouse Lawyers programs in prisons across the world, especially in some of the countries that I work in, such as across the African continent, where there's just not enough lawyers. And so many people who are incarcerated, particularly women, just actually can't even afford to access a lawyer. So this is such a great model. And maybe you'll think of expanding beyond Florida. Maybe that's too much to ask, but no, it's really great to hear about this. I then asked Jodie if she could tell me more about some of her first encounters with the other women she met while incarcerated. I was honestly surprised at how many of the women, and this was my first relationship with women in my life. And I must say, like, I grew up in a stereotypical, you know, example of what a criminal, poverty, marginalized person, you know, Black person in the United States, you know, would grow up. But I never looked at it, you know, as criminal or looked at like that we were poor or any of those things. Like we survived, 
you know, and so I'll never forget like getting to prison, you know, and I remember going in like I got these charges, I'm going to prison, like I'm gonna use the ex experience and I'm gonna come home and I'm going to be able to, you know, be a better, honestly, like a better thug was what I was thinking, a better criminal, like a better, just tough fitting into that narrative. But when I got in that prison, I did not find criminals. I did not find even what I had been taught to believe that I was and what we were, you know, as inmates, as prisoners, as people who had committed crime. And being at Lowell Correctional Facility, I was with women who were serving life. I was also, when I was a law clerk, the law clerk for death row confinement, solitary confinement. So, you know, um, also as a law clerk, a jailhouse lawyer, I was one of the few adults who was not a guard that had access to youthful offenders, you know, and nobody really understands the reality of what our babies are going through and the isolation that they experience. And so through the law library, you know, to even just be able to really see and hear the lives of the people who, you know, we punish and we're on the inside, you know? And so these women were like artists. These women were performers. Like sometimes, you know, I, I forget that I was in prison. They knew how to transform a space into hope. I tell people all the time that they were so much themselves, so authentic that I could not, but for the first time in my life, like be myself. You know, I looked up to so many of them that, I mean, I just reflected back to who you were. And it was the first time I ever heard stories. I remember sitting at the bed of like women and even being a law clerk and these women telling me their stories. And it was so beautiful because, because I knew and loved the law and could speak the language of the law. I could also speak their language and hear and feel in a way that like we as legal empowerment practitioners, it was like this beautiful solution, you know, of like, how do we bring these two um, together and to see the interconnectedness. But women inside are master thinkers. They are resources. You know, I tell people all the time, like I am who I am for my family. I came home a totally different person, you know, um, and I'm myself and these women taught me how to bathe. They taught me how to love myself. They taught me how to have confidence. They made the world felt safe. And so it really amazes me when we think about criminals or we think about people who commit crime. And that's why I'm so supportive of this restorative and transformative justice movements. You know, but I've seen behind those masks and those labels. And I mean, some of the most intuitive, compassionate, empathetic, creative, like the things we say that we want on those women living on the inside. Thank you, Jodie, for giving us all that description. It's so important because often what many people hear about women in prison is just statistics or these really stereotyped and stigmatizing stories. So thank you for giving us that color and all the sort of personality and hope. That's just so important. Jodie, when you were released from prison, what were some of the challenges that you faced coming home? You know, first I came home and I wasn't prepared to exercise my plan and my goals. You know, just in my community, like a lot of things, like I had learned so many new, 
you know, um, things had become um, such a new person. And so like, sometimes when you return and I tell people all the time, like reentry isn't always safe. You know, we send people supposedly away to be transformed and rehabilitated. And then when you kind of just return back to the same, I mean, it was really a culture shock. And a lot of people don't understand that, you know, um, that after you are doing time and you really adapt to one society, it's like really being pulled out of multiple, you know, worlds. And so trying to build connection um, with my kids, um, navigating probation, trying to get into college, getting married, you know, also reestablishing relationships. I didn't account to how much work. All of this was, it seems simple on your goal list and your exit plan, you know, and then building a sense of community, you know, all those things like figuring it out for the first time, you know, um, it was really hard and um, learning how to ask, you know, for help. Also just like working through like employment and working from employment, from getting a job, any job that you can get to like actually being able to scale that over years. It would be weird for people to hear this, but I remember wanting to go back, like being in prison. There were so many times like people would be talking about recidivism, you know, and I'd be sitting in these spaces like these people have no idea what they're talking about, you know, and recognizing that there was sometimes where my community felt more hostile. You know, people sometimes think that I glorify being in prison, like what was wrong with me? And it's like, yeah, uh, violent. It was violent in prison. It was survival in prison. It was horrible in prison, but it was horrible in my community. Like I've experienced violence as a young person. It was violent at my elementary school. Middle school and high school were some of the most violent years, you know, of my life. And so for me, it has been a fight since being out to not just be out, but if I'm not going to be incarcerated anymore in a prison, that means I'm not going to be incarcerated anymore, period, you know? And so um, I have to, I had to make my home feel free, you know? I had to learn how to first model what I believe in, you know, to my kids, you know? And so it's going to process this being out, but I tell people all the time I'm practicing humanity. You know, I've been isolated all my life. So it has been a journey of freedom, even after getting out and just always checking in and making sure. So it's tough. I think for a lot of people, when you get out, I felt like I've been blessed to have the freedom to meet so many different people. And so like my sisters, even with the Jailhouse Lawyers Initiative, you know, um, to be able to be connected to, you know, incarcerated people in communities in Chicago, in New Orleans, you know, inside of New York, inside of Texas, inside of California, in Africa, you know, in Haiti is really giving expanded my community. And so it's a balance. Thank you for sharing so powerfully about some of those challenges that you experienced, because I think people often think that once you're released from prison, that's sort of the end of the story. And I love, Jodi, how you speak about unlearning, which is so important. And I really think it, also at Women Beyond Walls, we're trying to be this space to learn and unlearn because we're all these works in progress, which you put so eloquently. And I wonder if you could share a little bit more about this process or this journey of unlearning for you. Yes. So 
I'll never forget. I get into the county jail and I was in the county jail for about nine months was my entire process between turning myself in, being sentenced, and then going to serve my sentence. And about five months in, you know, I'm not doing drugs now. I'm not connected to the wrong guys. Like for the first time, my 23-year-old body is still. And I remember putting in a call out to ask to speak to someone for mental health because I, I thought I was hearing voices. And it was the first time I learned that I had an inner dialogue. I mean, this is the first time I noticed, you know, um, that inner dialogue. And then I'll never forget of just like listening to myself and being in this cell, being in this place of isolation. But for me, my body was there, but my mind. And it was like all just kind of like passing by me, you know, passing by me. And to be honest, I started to see and understand how some of my thoughts and like feelings were like things that I had never agreed to. I just started recognizing how, and then also just being with the women, right? Having these conversations and they say some stuff that I'd never heard or like, I, just, I always believed I was like the only person you know, um, in the world. And these women would say things or just witness to me in a way where like that truth, you know, um, hearing their stories, something inside of me connected with like truth. And that put my own life into perspective. And so like once over time, you know, of like checking off. So like that first, you know, like year or two, I feel like I were analyzing myself and my beliefs and my thoughts and my even my actions and behaviors and was like uh uh you know and I finally was in and believe it or not and I'm not talking about the prison I'm talking about amongst my sisters because even if I'm in the law library like we all law clerks like we're there together so we inhabit and control that space you know no matter where we were it was just like we created a space within the institution so this was a safe space for me to try on some different behaviors, ideas, you know, flow of being myself. And so once I started unlearning, it was amazing because I was reading so much. And it was the first time I read about American presidents and even reading the law. And then that allowed me to like shape like what I did want to learn. You said you learned to listen to yourself for the first time. Now you're out for seven years are you still finding that space to listen to yourself absolutely it really just became this process for me to always check in with myself because i recognized how many times for 23 years 33 years i hadn't been myself and so you know i love peace being a part of our pursuit to justice and so like i, I do that everywhere i go you know, um, whether it's at home, you know, creating a space of peace. And when you think about it, and it's really just hit me now, I learned how to do that in prison. I, I remember never imagining how I was going to be able to shower in front of people. Or I couldn't understand how I could give up so much privacy. And to now look back and recognize, I mean, in a corner that had no walls, I could be beautifully hidden and you know illuminated at the same time 
And so I've learned to do that, whether I am on a stage or I'm in a law school or I'm at home or wherever I'm at. That's my piece, right? I can slow down enough and hear myself enough to just make sure that I'm at least making the best decision that I believe. And so that's kind of like been my guide. Like that's how I gauge my freedom. Am I consciously making the choice? Now, if I made the choice and it blew up in my face, it still edified me because I'm learning, right, from my choices. Like, I just refuse now that I know about data, now that I know about my body and my anatomy and my biology. Um, I think I'm always constantly practicing being a part of, of life. So it's really been transformational in that way of learning how to do that for myself. I love that, Jodie. Thank you so much. I need to, like and learn so much more <laughs> and learn more from great women like you, I think. Your work has contributed to so much change, but what are you most proud about in your work so far? I honestly am proud of law students, lawyers that I'm connected to in law schools to be connected with so many people. I think in the United States, we really say like lawyers and trust me, there are some, you know, um, lawyers. But when I think about the relationship, like when you look at Leah, you look at the jailhouse lawyers initiative, uh, you typically see, you know, this face or, you know, um, we see ourselves and I am proudly a part of the justice impacted movement. But I must say that like my community is so much more than just that. You know, I work with some of the most amazing legal empowerment practitioners, um, movement lawyers, abolitionist lawyers, you know, um, NLG, NAMATI, the Global Legal Empowerment Network, the Bernstein Institute for Human Rights. Like, I can go on and on. And so to have built those relationships, you know, like these, I've, it's always been hard for me to trust. You know, I often wanted to go back to prison because like that was the first time I ever had a healthy sense of community and space to be myself. And I'm, I'm really proud to have that through, you know, my legal empowerment network and, you know, my jailhouse lawyers. I mean, they are amazing. You know, I always felt like this wasn't about just how I could help them. Like I knew that they would and could be and is the help that we need on the outside. So um, the relationships, like I'm loved and trusted throughout the country, throughout the world um, by people that don't look like me, you know, or have the same experience that I do. So that is a very big part of, of my work. At Women Beyond Walls, one of our values is to learn and unlearn as a way to collaboratively thrive and flourish. Listening to Jodie, I was struck by how much of her learning and unlearning had focused on finding a way to flourish wherever she was and where possible to help those alongside her in that journey to flourish too. I wanted to know more about what she thought needed to be done by those working in the criminal justice system to foster that kind of collaborative flourishing? I think you can get out of the way. Um, trust those women, like build relationships with those women. You know, I, I have people that I feel like are door or 
openers. A lot of times we're thinking about what physical resources this person need. Like really, like, and like that's judgment, right? Like thinking about what we can do to help this person. But how can we help people help themselves? And that takes like asking questions, being prepared to listen, and then being able to be a part of the solution that she has for herself and for her community. I think we have to accept that there are some solutions and opportunities that are available that even we believe as lawyers and organizations that don't exist. Like we can't be afraid to trust. We've tried everything else, right? So why not try the impossible? Why not try, you know, something different? And that doesn't mean trying to, you know, tear it all, you know, to this place or just like destroy the system, you know, but how can we use our access to get close to women? having trusted relationships. I encourage everybody to look at like, you know, participatory action research. Like we see now participatory um, defense. We see participatory budgeting. So many amazing collaborative just frameworks, right? That we can think about and adopt inside of our um, communities. And so that takes trust and relationship. My new motto is practice on yourself, but like model it, right? to the people that you want to help. And so I just really hope that lawyers and organizations, institutions and systems will help create the space that people need to do to do their own healing. Like first we need to heal. I love in legal empowerment, we say you have to know the law to practice the law to shape it. And so we can't expect people to shape and be a, a part of shaping. You know, we just talked about reentry, right? creating the space for women to go back, to do that healing, to do that transformation, to do that practice, to be human before we just start interviewing and extracting. So let's stop extracting. Let's humanize our own selves and humanize your organizations and law firms and humanize like the space that you have access to so that when women, that when we get there, you know, these spaces are safe for us to be able to be who we are. So create opportunities for women to be women. Thank you so much. That was so powerful. There's so much to take away from that, especially about not just extracting and humanizing and exactly remembering that we're all individuals and having relationships. And I really hope that particularly the lawyers listening to you will, will kind of think differently about how to really work with and for, you know, incarcerated women and girls. So thank you so much for that, Jody. You have given us some beautiful insights into the beauty of collaboration, but at Women Beyond Walls, we recognize one of the challenges is so often we have all these different groups or working in silos, even though they may have the same hopes and dreams. The lawyers on one side, those with lived experience on another, academics, charities, NGOs, activists. What advice or encouragement would you give to all these disparate groups to encourage the kind of transformative collaboration you've hinted at in this conversation? Ah, oh, great question. At RPCP, River Phoenix Center for Peace Building, we used to always ask ourselves, what is ours to do? 
That was the most powerful question I ever heard in my life. What is mine to do? And sometimes it's scary, right? And I also engage like, yes, there's resistance. There's enduring our work, right? But what is ours to do? And I think like organizationally, um, partnerships like your own institution, like actually what do you have access to? I think a lot of times we put ourselves in the magnitude of the issue that we forget like presently, who are you talking to every day? Who are you accountable to? Who are you responsible for? Who is it that supports you? Like bring some of this work that we want to practice in these other spaces. Like really, I think embedding it in our own space. Like I truly believe we use that term loosely being the change that we want to see in the world. You know, so what is mine to do, right? And so that would be the first one. And then the second one is don't be afraid to be exclusive. That was something that I had to really accept in my own journey. I'm for everybody. I I love everybody. I want to help everybody. But, and I'll never forget Calvin Duncan, who is just someone great to my heart, one of the greatest jailhouse lawyers that exists in the United States. He told me, if I was going to do this work, be exclusive to jailhouse lawyers. And so like before I really tried to work with everybody and, you know, I'm trying to do so much. And so now I specifically focus on kind of like who are my people, you know, um, sometimes like I think we get a little, it feels bad, right? To kind of just create those divisions or to be exclusive. But um, jailhouse lawyers, I work specifically with the people that is honestly also safe for me to work with, you know, um, that I'm connected to. And so I think that's like, just makes sense. And then that practicality of working, like I noticed is right, that shared learning, shared power. A lot of us don't want to give up the knowledge, you know? And so I work with lawyers all the time and it's like, and I hear this, like we're overworked, we have limited resources and we don't see people as a resource. Don't just invest in the system. We already know the system is the systems and, you know, but invest in those people. You know, and to me, that's what jailhouse lawyers and legal empowerment represent. That when you teach someone what you know, you really share yourself, you expand. We must expand, you know, um, and we must like think about how we're doing that. Some of this just takes sharing the knowledge that you have. You know, law students, they go through law school, they get rid of those books and don't even recognize how their books you know, if given to community, like they didn't need you to come in and maybe share and do, you know, all of these things. But like, we sometimes don't recognize what resources, what we have that we take for granted. Um, That could be such a huge resource for somebody who doesn't have anything. And so get out there into those places too, where those people are. A lot of times, like we got to think about if we're in the system, if you're at a march or a movement, And everybody around you are all advocating for the same thing, but you looking around and you don't see at least half the people there being the representation of the people that you're fighting for. There's a problem. We got to start showing up in the neighborhoods and the communities. People who are criminalized are isolated from community. And so until you have those relationships, until you have at least that connection and relationship to add value to your mission and your work. We just doing what everybody else, you know, doing. 
And so um, to me, I feel like we are blessed as organizations and institutions and systems in the U.S. because the justice impacted movement is amazing. The National Council for Incarcerated, Formerly Incarcerated Girls, Participatory Defense, the Florida Rights Restoration, you know, Coalition, both PD, NOLA. I mean, when you look at the participatory, the hubs, like justice impacted people are visible in the United States. And so we have a responsibility. We have access. We have privilege to be able to learn from them and to be able to connect with them to actually create safe and trusted processes, safe and trusted you know, access for us to think about where we're going. So I just always, for my lawyers and for, you know, um, organizations, I just really encourage you that your solutions, you know, um, your missions, your values, it should look like something we have never seen before. And I know that's hard sometimes to kind of turn away from what we've always held on to. Um, But I I really just encourage us to be open, you know, and to, to do that work. But first do that work with yourself with who you are most connected to and then take that authenticity out into your community and you know create new processes and opportunities thank you that's so valuable i love that about starting with your community first and everything you've said about making sure you're really working with the impacted communities is so important the U.S. absolutely has such an inspiring movement of formerly incarcerated women, women who are just as impacted. And the National Council is just incredible. I I fully want to give them a shout out as well because they do such <laughs> yes. incredible work, really wonderful work and have inspired <laughs> me and challenged me so much. And in the, the many countries I work in, I'm really excited to see how this movement can grow globally as well. Like, you know, led by women like yourselves, Jodi. So thank you for sharing that. I wanted to touch on some of the wider change that needs to happen and to get your insights into that as well. The US has one of the highest numbers of incarcerated women, a large percentage of whom are black or from minoritized communities. What do you think needs to change about the way the US treats women in contact with the criminal justice system? All of it needs to change. And that's why I'm looking forward to building relationships. I tell people all the time, I don't believe that the world know who Black people are. I mean, when we think about the history of our country, when we think about incarceration, this has been a matter of time. You know, um, even my own, like, just ability to sometimes really understand that slavery happened in our country and that racism happened in our country and that it had a direct impact, right, on my great-great-grandparents, like my grandmother. You know, even going to the lynching memorial, the Equal Justice um, Initiative, so important for somebody like me from the South. You know, we hear about Black History Month and a few stories, but to recognize that Black people have always been in danger, right, inside of the United States. And it has been a journey to recognize that. Like, I always believed that, you know, um, people like me lived where I lived. People like me went through what I went through. And so when we're on one side, we're talking about criminals. 
and criminal intent and behavior. And, you know, uh, we're looking at the acts of a person. But then on the peace side of it, we said we know, right, that um, violence is a, a, a sign of an unmet need. You know, we also know how um, women are affected by domestic violence. We also know how not having, you know, support systems, not having visibility, you know, shame, even for myself, when I saw the universal needs list, I remember weeping, thinking how many needs I had, but because I didn't identify them as needs, I learned, right? I limit myself. I would have thought I had only five needs in my life in the world. And to see that list gave me the opportunity to see and admit and accept that I needed community. I needed challenge, that I needed play, that I needed intimacy. I have been trying to, if you need, you know, affection and you're trying to get affection with, you know, challenge, like it, it really is concerning to me when I think about what we as women go through just as women, my mama, you know, my grandma, I used to like, you know, travel and be on these spaces and you hear Native Americans talk about ancestors and like low key in my heart, I kind of feel some type of way. Like who are my ancestors? The image that we've always been given, you know, we don't have even this an identity, you know? And so when I think about just what women need, it's not inside of the criminal justice system. You're so right, Jody, and we can't think about the criminal justice system in the world, but particularly in the US without looking at how racial discrimination impacts it. So I'm really glad that you shed light on that. And while we've been speaking, I've just been reflecting how heartbreaking it is that so many of the sort of services and support you need was in prison, but actually we need these in communities, like these need to be there you know, anyway, it's not for people to go into prison to access that. And we're not doing enough to really focus on providing this kind of support and services in communities. And on the inside, all of these supports and services are ran by the incarcerated people, you know? And so that's why even for myself, you know, for a while, I had been kind of getting caught up in the national movement. And one day I started noticing how removed I physically was away from my own local community. So that's why I'm also excited of what community paralegals, what that could look like inside of the U.S. context and really think about, you know, a lot of times you get out and the first thing is to go to work. Right. And just now get back participated in that system and that narrative. But how can we create safe neighborhoods for us to come home? How can we make it safe enough for even us who are in our communities to be the teachers, the artists, the lovers, the cookers, the comedians, the performers, you know, that I see that we are. And I noticed that like, it's not safe. And that's one of the gifts that I get of working with people incarcerated because out here is not safe in our communities, let alone in the system to be yourself. We really criminalize being black and we really criminalize joy we really criminalize asking questions we criminalize you know being creative we criminalize for stepping outside of anything and so 
I'm really looking forward to what it looks like when we feel safe to be a part of our own lives, to be, you know, confident that we can participate, that we can take care of our kids and provide for what they need and that, you know, um, the laws and policies won't punish people for being families. And so that's like really important to me. After such amazing insights, I wanted to know what gives Jodie the energy, hope and resilience to keep persevering in her work. I do believe that I have been able to see, as long as I got a sneak peek into what we can do, you know, when we come together. And so like, as long as I keep doing that, like, how can we not win? You know, um, how can we not be great? So that's what gives me hope, you know, evidence of looking at myself of seeing my own children. When I see my children being successful, when I see my children surviving, I know like I, I can do it for my sister. I can do it for my brother, you know? So that's my hope. And jailhouse lawyers, like I, I can't lie. For the United States, when jailhouse lawyers um, visible, when black women can be black women, when my jailhouse lawyers can be jailhouse lawyers, when my lawyers can feel safe, being lawyers, when law professors aren't incarcerated to the institutional policies, when students learn that the communities outside of the wall that the institutions have on would like welcome them in, when we recognize that the students inside of our communities are just like we are, when we see each other, like I already know what can happen, the magic, I say restorative justice, when people come together, it's magic every time. So that's what gives me hope. People say I'm the dreamer, but I'll do that. I see what we can do when we come together. We need more dreamers in this world, Jody, and we definitely need more Jodies. I love what a justice champion you are, and I love your energy and your vision and your passion. So please tell us what's coming up next for you in the future. What sort of projects are you working on? What's your hopes and the next dreams? So my hope is to go deeper and wider. You know, like I said before, I have learned to be exclusive, you know, and so I am looking forward to bringing, introducing lawyers, jailhouse lawyers, and law students all over the world. We want to see legal empowerment inside of the United States. And so I am looking forward to um, really introducing legal empowerment practitioners to community. Um, the jailhouse lawyers initiative is just amazing it's actually housed at nyu even though i live in florida you know and that's the one thing i say is new york state miles away that has taken up my work in supporting you know um the work and so we're looking forward to using technology to think about how technology can be safe um is a way for us to get access you know education and learning you know um to people inside and so I'm really excited. I think um, MLK says that, you know, peace is not the absence of justice or tension, but it's the presence of justice. So really looking forward to um, really bringing peace practices, um, restorative practices. You know, there's a lot of gaps inside the United States. So um, we're definitely building relationships and continuing to think about, about what we need. If listeners are interested, which I'm sure they will be, how can they support the important work you're doing? 
Absolutely. So please check us out. Um, you can go to the Jailhouse Lawyers Initiative at NYU and learn more about the work that we are doing um, through the Jailhouse Lawyers Initiative. The Legal Empowerment and Advocacy Hub does have a Facebook um, page. And so we are um, here. Our network is national. So no matter where you are, um, all over the country, or even if you're tuning in and listening from outside of the country, uh, we truly are a safe space to have uh, relationship building. So check us out, ask questions, and um, would love to just connect with folks through through those ways. Wonderful. Jody. thank you so much for your time today, the incredible insights you've given us and just the inspiring work you keep doing. We wish you well for everything you're doing and thank you once again for your time. Thank you, Serena. Stand up. We've got to stand up. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women Beyond Walls. To find out more about Jodi and the organisations and work mentioned in this episode, visit our website at womenbeyondwalls.org. This episode is edited by Human Group Media, a podcast company for social change and impact. To learn more about their work, please visit humangroupmedia.com. On this episode, we are thankful for the assistance of Laura Cook as producer, Victoria Lynn as communications fellow, Callista Jayasuria and Lucy Harry for research support, and to Lady Unchained and Miri for the use of their song, which accompanies all podcast episodes in this series. If you love the song as much as we do, visit Unchained Poetry's website, a platform for artists with experience of the criminal justice system. If you enjoyed this episode of Women Beyond Walls, we encourage you to pass it on and share with friends. And if you have time, we would really appreciate your reviews on your podcast platform. 